Well, good morning. I can confirm I am Gary. And uh, you'll see me more often in the band than up here preaching. I also lead one of the, the church's home groups, the small groups in which people meet. Uh, and once or twice a year, I get to preach. So I have a lot to say. Uh, <laughs> I can hope I can fit it all into the next five hours. Uh, um, so, sorry, 0.5. Anyway, today's reading, we're continuing in John's Gospel, and we jump from chapter 2 to chapter 4, starting in chapter 4, verse 44, if you want to find that. Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The second sign that Jesus performed. John rarely mentions wonders. There's a mention of signs and wonders in here, but not not in a sort of good way. John's always talking about signs, not wonders. Wonders are, whoa, that was amazing. Signs... They should signify something. Let me know if this is getting too complicated. They they should mean something. Uh, As when you're driving about, a road sign should mean something. It tells you something useful that you need to know as you are driving. Sometimes they're less useful. Um, The ones that say hidden dips. I think, you're telling me there's something I am not going to see (laughs) that is potentially a hazard. This is not terribly useful. Who's been putting humus and tarama salata on the road anyway? (laughs) Bible signs are useful. You have to know what they mean, as you have to know what the road signs mean. But they're useful. They tell us something. And the meaning of a sign is that it points to something or someone. Now, in this particular passage that John describes the whole thing as a sign, I see three Meanings. Now, as a general point, John has actually told us 
what all the signs are for. We don't have to work it out. He's told us in black and white or whatever color ink he was using. Right at the end of his gospel, he explains he's written these signs down to show that Jesus is genuine. This is what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have life. That's what the signs are pointing towards. And when John, indeed when Jesus, talks about life, he's not just talking about a state of not being dead. He's talking about life in its fullness, like abundant life, as some translations will have it, eternal life. This is something more than simply being able to walk and talk. This is, this is the most important point about the signs, all the signs. If we don't get that, none of the rest is going to make sense. Because when Jesus does extraordinary things... It backs up the extraordinary claims that he makes for himself. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am, you can believe him. When he says to the Apostle Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen God. These are extraordinary things for a man to say. But as Paul puts it, he is the image of the invisible God. As C.S. Lewis put it, given the things that Jesus said about himself, he was either mad, or he was bad, or he actually was the Son of God. There aren't really any other options. For those who say he is just a prophet, well, he was a blasphemous prophet, if he was not actually the Son of God. For those who say, he was just a good teacher, well, he's an incompetent teacher if he was wrong about himself and saying these crazy things. The signs tell us he wasn't mad. No madman can do these things. He wasn't bad. He was really performing these signs and wonders. The option we're left with is he is the Son of God. He is genuine. And that by believing in him, we may have life. Life in all its fullness. That's the meaning of all the signs. So, yeah, we could say that in each of these seven sermons in this series. But there are also specific meanings to each of the signs that John records. And in the context of this particular series, Jesus is master of distance or master of space and time, but that's next week. The boy was healed at a distance, okay, around 15 miles as the angel flies. And immediately. Now, now should we be surprised? Why would distance be any kind of object to the one who created all time and space? What does space even mean in the spiritual realm? How far away is God? Well, he's here. He's also on the other side of the world. We know that because we just heard from, from Michael. He's definitely there as well. So perhaps the, the surprise is that Jesus doesn't heal at a distance more often. <laughs> I can think of one other occasion comparable in the Gospels where 
Jesus heals at, at a distance. It's a, a centurion's servant. Uh, you can put one finger in the, either Matthew or Luke's gospel, Matthew chapter 8, Luke chapter 7. I like the Luke version because it's kind of written by a physician. Um, but, yeah, so you can have one finger in chapter 4, one finger in Luke chapter 7. And because I'm going to... These are different episodes, but there are some interesting comparisons that we can make as we go along. So anyway, Jesus can heal this way at a distance without a second thought. But more often, he's with the person being healed. With Jairus' daughter, he's there in the room. He takes her by the hand. He raises her up. In the case of Lazarus, he waits until he can be there at the entrance to the tomb and call Lazarus back to life. Not actually there, touching Lazarus, but close by. And we heard last week that Jesus turned the water into wine without going around laying hands on the jars. So there's a little bit of distance involved, but this is probably the greatest distance that's recorded from Cana to Galilee. Jesus can heal at a distance. This is very good news for us because Jesus is is not physically here in the room. Now, if his Holy Spirit is within you, then he is present by that means. He's not physically present here. We depend on him being able to heal at a distance. Otherwise, we would really have a problem. But Jesus doesn't always do the same thing. He understands the context. He grasps what's happening, particularly the people who are involved. He doesn't have to prove anything to himself. And he chooses the signs. He can walk on water. Normally, he gets in a boat. He's not showing off. He's doing things for a reason. Now, when the centurion asked Jesus to heal his uh, servant at a distance... That, I guess, is why Jesus did it. There's an explanation. But why did he do the same for this royal official? Why did he do something that was actually quite unusual for him, to heal at a great distance rather than uh, go to the man's home? I can think of several reasons. Um, from From Cana to Capernaum, it's a walk of around 20 miles. Uh, People vary in their exact estimates. It's that sort of order. Um, It's a good half day's walk. Now, I can imagine what the disciples are thinking as this conversation is going on. Rabbi, please, no, we are not going back to Capernaum. We've just walked from Samaria. We came through Capernaum. It'll be night time by the time we get there. We're going to be spending another night sleeping on Peter's roof. And that roof is not good. You could go through it with a small spade. So, yeah, there is a physical challenge involved in going back to Capernaum. And maybe Jesus had particular reason for being in Cana. Or was it something to do with the man making the request? Um, he's simply described um, in the Greek as a basilikos. So that explains it all to you. Or, or in case it doesn't, it's someone who's got an association with a king. Um, 
And older translations tend to say a nobleman. More recent ones have tended to say a royal official, and that's what I've gone with today. Anyway, so, someone from the royal household. Which, which royal household? This is Galilee, so it's a fair assumption that it's Herod Antipas, before whom Jesus will eventually face trial. Now, Herod was not particularly popular with his own subjects, uh, partly on account of his ancestry, a bit too Greek, not Jewish enough for, for them, for his character, his behavior. Remember, he's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded because John had criticized him for stealing his half-brother's wife. It was that wife that was kind of responsible, but it was Herod's stupidity that resulted in John's death. More to the point, Herod is Rome's man. He's not even a proper king. He's just a tetrarch, a ruler over a, a fourth part of the kingdom, though he always wanted more. So, but does Jesus have a problem going with this man's house? But it's not what he said, and it doesn't seem quite in character. Jesus was quite prepared to go to the home of a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, an agent of the oppression of Israel. So maybe that's not the reason. Why did Jesus heal at a distance on this particular occasion? I think the answer might be in a possible third meaning of this sign. Look at Jesus' initial response to this royal official. It might seem quite harsh. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's kind of an echo of what Jesus says later. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. But let's go back and look at the context. So while you've got one finger in John chapter 4 and one finger in Luke chapter 7, can you put a third finger in John chapter 2? I don't know how you'd do this if you're doing it on a phone. Is there, is, is, is there a way? This, this is where at the end of chapter 2, John writes about Jesus saying, he did not need any testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, this is not mind reading. This is understanding the person, knowing their heart, their motives, their needs, their limitations. Now, we kind of do that. We say, don't trust them. They're nice people. I think they need some help. But Jesus takes it to another level. Now, this verse, I think it often gets lost because it's at the end of a chapter. Uh, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. It's just a statement in isolation. But remember, John didn't have any chapter numbers, any verse numbers. They, they added later for easy reference. Right? That's, that's kind of medieval. So this verse, I think, introduces what we call chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus immediately need, knows what Nicodemus needs to hear. What's going to make a difference to Nicodemus' life? And then on to chapter 4. What happens in chapter 4? Jesus comes across a Samaritan woman and straight away he's just revealing her life to her and there's a big impact in Samaria with people believing in him. And then he's back in Galilee and he's approached by a royal official and he immediately perceives something in the hearts of the people around him. Probably including the royal official but 
the you here, you, unless you see signs and wonders, you, the, the you is plural. Now, English is not very helpful here because a lot of languages, you and is different depending on whether you're talking to one person or many. Not so in English. That's why the NIV and some other translations add the word people. You people. So that we understand that he's not talking to just one person. You will never believe if you don't see signs and wonders. Now Jesus has just come back from Samaria and the people believed there just on the basis of what Jesus was saying and his remarkable conversation with this woman. Cana is where he just recently turned water into wine. The people there had seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the Passover festival because they were there. Well, they still want more signs and wonders. So perhaps Jesus' rebuke was aimed more at the Galileans than the royal official. And maybe that's why Jesus pronounced healing right there and then. And again, note an oddity in the translation. He didn't say, your son will live. He said, your son lives. Present tense. Right now. As I say this, your son lives. The implication is he will continue to live. (laughs) But it's present tense. Right now, he lives. So it's the father who got the sign. The father is on his way back home. He's met and he's told, your son lives. (laughs) And it happened at the exact time that Jesus said it was going to happen. So the doubters around him, they didn't get the sign. Well, not straight away. Anyway, I mean, we, we, we all know about it now. It's famous, it's written down and, and preserved for, for all these centuries. But it's the father who first got that sign. I think Jesus knew what was in his heart and gave him that sign. And in the case of the centurion... Jesus immediately says, I will go to his home. He could have suspected some motive in the centurion, like he wanted signs and wonders. He could have said, well, that's all very well. You're embarrassed to have me in your house, you being a centurion and all a bit awkward for you. Didn't say that. He said, I will go. He knows the man's heart. And he discovers, actually, we discover he was right. So the three meanings I see. First, the big one, Jesus is genuine. Distance is not an object. Jesus knows our hearts. And it's all so that we should believe. But this whole episode is wrapped up in one man's journey of faith. There is this progression that we see behind the story. Consider this royal official. He's traveled about 20 miles uphill to find Jesus. Don't know if he was walking or on horseback. It's, a, it's not an easy journey either way. He didn't take offense at Jesus' first response. And when Jesus says the boy lives, he immediately goes straight back home. And his first thought when he's told his boy is recovered is, when did it happen? He's finding a way to confirm his own faith as it's growing as he goes back down the hill. But it's, it's a limited faith. Because he thinks that Jesus has to be there in order 
for the healing to happen until Jesus tells him differently, and then immediately he's away. So there's some, there is a limit to this faith. For all I know, it was a faith of desperation. He tried everything else. Let's give Jesus a try. I don't know. But the fact is, Jesus not, is not despising limited faith. Whatever faith we have, he will want it to grow, and he'll give us the means for it to grow. And at the end, this royal official, he has his sign. And what happens? He believes. He had faith, and now he believes. In the same way as the disciples, when they turned, saw the water turned into wine, of course they had faith. They were following Jesus. But then John says, when they saw that, they believed. <laughs> there is this journey, a, a progression now, the case of the centurion is different. The centurion didn't go on a great journey. It's all happening within Capernaum. He probably didn't even go to Jesus in person. But he understood more about Jesus' authority. He knew that Jesus didn't have to be there. His belief came before that healing. And Jesus commends him. A bit controversial saying, this man's faith is greater than any I've found in Israel. Samaritans and Romans are not excluded. So regardless of motives, false or good, Jesus healed the official's son. He just did it. He didn't ask whether the man had unconfessed sin in his life. He didn't ask whether he really supported Herod. Are you really with that guy? didn't delve into his past to find some reason of his son's sickness. His healing was simply a response to faith. Now, of course, people might be prevented from going to Jesus by a concern about their lives, their sins and all, but the Gospels say he healed how many who came to him? All who came to him. There's some who didn't come, and as far as we know, they didn't get healed, but all who came to him. Note that it was Jewish elders who pleaded the centurion's case on the basis that the centurion deserved Jesus to come and heal his servant. Can you think of a time when Jesus checked whether someone deserved healing? I can't. Healing comes from faith, not because we deserve it. And that's another sign for how we should think about salvation, God's free gift of grace based on faith. If he'll give us eternal life on that basis, why would he not heal on that basis? So, if you're praying for healing, you don't have to dig into someone's past, find out if there's something wrong that they have to put right before they're going to get healed. Do they want Jesus to heal them? Have they the faith to ask? Of course, if, Jesus, if, if you give a word of knowledge as you pray, of course, you, you use it with all due humility. But just follow, it. follow Jesus' example. From his position of compassion and power, he knows our needs and thoughts. He knows our failings, and he loves us anyway. And if you do need healing or prayer for anything else today, don't forget prayer ministry right at the end of the service over here. If you have to form a queue, form a queue. I'm sure there are other members of the ministry team who will come out. The signs are given that you may believe 
that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life. Life in all its abundance, eternal life in his name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.